This is the SSBI podcast. This is all about Microsoft Power BI. My name is Lars Schreiber. I would be... I guess we have totally different characters. This is something I notice when I read your blog posts and the way you um, are on stage. And I remember your your green and red hair and stuff back, <laughs> back then. It was it was strange, but um, yeah, I guess that became your brand somehow. Well, you know, we can if you want to, we can talk about that because that isn't always that wasn't always true either. I am I'm a very different person. Uh, Fifteen years on than I was um, at Microsoft, even even in the later years at Microsoft, but, but the early or middle years at Microsoft, like you wouldn't recognize me. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, it's, it's uh, the same with me somehow. Can I ask you um, how old you are? Yeah, I'm. Let's see if I can remember. <laughs> I'm either. I'm uh, this year. So this is 22. Hey, I'm 47. I'll be 48 in Four, the summer. 47. Yeah. Oh, I thought we were uh, almost the same age. I'm, I'm 40 yeah. now. Yeah. So I'm a. I'm a. I'm a. I'm an old man. Yeah. <laughs> What's the alternative? Dying young. So. Yeah, I know. I know. Right. <laughs> you know. I'm just. Uh, um. But yeah. I'm. Uh, I'm goofier than most 47-year-olds. <laughs> what, what means goofier? Well, like sillier, like, um, you know, like, for example, if you go look at my Twitter right now, I think my, my last tweet or my second to last most recent tweet is a link to a YouTube video that, I mean, is just ridiculous ridiculously clownish um <laughs> and that's that's what that's goofy right is being uh being silly yeah. uh, got it, got it. <laughs> uh i'm almost aging in reverse like i was a i was a much much more serious youngster <laughs> <laughs> um yeah um that also is something we, I share with you. Um, when I was younger, I was only serious. And in the meantime, I learned not to take myself too serious anymore. Yeah, I think seriousness for me was ultimately like, like a, uh, one, of, one of many self-medications I administered you know, to myself uh, for insecurity. Yeah. You know, like serious means you're not making a whole lot of moves. You know, like you're... You you keep yourself, you know. You you move like the king on the chessboard at most, hmm. you know. Yeah. No 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 big movements like the queen, you know. Like you know, <laughs> <laughs> those are dangerous, you know. Uh, so I mean, I, yeah. There's some. Um, I was actually t uh, texting with with Dave Gaynor last night about exactly this, like sort of like the like insecurity and shyness and how a lot of us share it. And then how a lot of us, we we have very different mechanisms for dealing with it. And um, but yeah, the, the the version of me that's out there today is probably, you know, the version that I I would have been if I wasn't so scared most of my life. 
that's that's so interesting. I I can remember um, I had Alberto Ferrari on my on my podcast, and we never talked before that, and it was such a nice and and wonderful conversation because he's just a wonderful human being. Isn't he great? Yeah, and he um, twittered um, about imposter. Yeah, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, like no way, not him. Yeah, and it's. I de I never heard b about imposter. I guess four years ago it was a new term for me. I I always felt like it. I know what it yeah. feels like, but yeah. I never heard the term, so I never could could put a name on it. And when I heard it, I felt really familiar with this feeling. But of course, you think people like our Italian friends could never. Uh, have they're the gods. Imposter. Yeah, they're the gods of this, right? Like yeah. you know, like. You know, Zeus never had imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know, like, aren't they, don't they live on Mount Olympus? Isn't Mount Olympus, like, located in the Southern Alps somewhere, like, close to where they live, you know? <laughs> I know it used to be in Greece, but no, no, not anymore. Now yeah, it's in yeah. Italy. And, uh, but isn't, isn't that crazy? And he was, yeah. he was, um, he was replying to a tweet from Adam Saxton. He said, Oh, uh, I, usually I, I can handle it, but today I have imposter. And I barely said that's this is how my uh, all my days look like. And I said, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so and by the way, I think this is the this is some of the stuff that's like people really need to hear, especially if they're working on their own, right? If they're if they're not part of like a a, a bigger group, yeah. Uh, you don't get a lot of feedback. So like when people join our company, P three, uh, one of the things I tell everybody is about imposter syndrome. Really, you know, and like, and how, and how it's likely that you will experience it coming here, coming to P three, and because I I think it's actually um, almost like a necessary consequence of being um, uh, of being intelligent and having integrity. Mm -hmm. If you have those two things, imposter syndrome follows. It's just inevitable. <laughs> you know, and um, so, uh, and you know, when people come to work at our company, it's an it's really an interesting switch because almost by definition, um, where they were before, you know, they weren't properly valued or appreciated where they were before. Otherwise, they'd still be there. And so, if you keep going down this road, and it's really interesting to think of it this way. So, okay, so the organization that they were in before didn't value them properly. Okay. That also means that probably that organization didn't have a lot of people like them. You, you, you lose them <laughs> if you don't value them. You certainly don't develop them if you don't value them. Right? So not only were our, our consultants in their former roles, not only were they sort of underappreciated on many different dimensions, They were also tended to be alone. They were the only one that was as good as them. Yeah. And so and that's a bummer, right? You don't, it, it's, it's a bummer to be alone. It's not, it's not fun, it's, you know, but there is an interesting sort of positive, you know, hidden benefit to it, which is it's really good for the ego. Like, I'm the person, I'm the one that knows this stuff, the one, right? You start to, and so it becomes, it's very natural for that to kind of leak into your identity, I'm like the best 
at something, you know, big fish in a small pond type of syndrome. So when you come, if you have intelligence and integrity, and then you come to an environment where like you're no longer alone, it's awesome, right? You can, you can interact with your own, you know, your own kind, right? Your own tribe and you can get help. It's amazing to get help for the first time in your life, like to, you know, but at the same time, there's this like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, you're starting to, you know, it's easy to wrestle with this feeling like you're not as special as you thought you were. And like, you don't even really know that you're experiencing this negative, you know, icky feeling. Um, so, you know, it's part of our onboarding now that we sort of talk about this. We say, you know, it's, it's kind of like confirmation that you came to the right place and confirmation that you're a, you know, a good type of person. Um, don't, don't get confused about, about, about it. And so I agree with you, even though I'm, I'm the one, not, not the only one, but I'm one of the people who delivers this, you know, this sermon about imposter syndrome to all of our new hires, even to me. Yeah. It's kind of shocking, right? Like, come on, not Alberto. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, but, but like, if you go back to like, sort of like my logical breakdown of it and you, and you just think about it that way and not think about it emotionally, then you come around to, well, of course he has imposter syndrome. He's smart. He's got integrity. <laughs> and he knows that like there are things that he can learn from other people. You know, and that's the way you're supposed to be. I guess imposter isn't the problem. I guess it's how you deal with it, with like with any other problem. Yeah. And if it helps you to develop further and grow, it's it's great. If it just keeps you from um, presenting or showing yourself or even developing further, then uh, it's a problem. Uh, and for me, Microsoft was my big reckoning with imposter syndrome. And we didn't have the name back then. We didn't have, we didn't have a fancy terms like imposter syndrome back in the 90s, you know? We just sucked it out, roughed it out on our own, you know? <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, but I mean, like, think about what Microsoft was and, you know, still to this day, I think largely is, is like, uh, it was a a concentration. You know, when I got there, there were 16,500 people at Microsoft in the, in the Seattle area, quite a bit smaller than than today, but still, still very big. And I was kind of lucky in a way to even get a job there. I interviewed with two teams. One of them, the Windows team positively trashed me. I mean... You could just see, like, the sympathy and and like you know in in their eyes, like, oh yeah, this 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 kid do- doesn't have it, <laughs> 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 and I didn't. They were right. And then I also interviewed with a with Office, and what turned out to be one of the one of the I don't know, it's, it's kind of a almost a not nice thing to say, but it was the truth. It was one of the weaker teams in Office, uh, and so like, and I got in. Right? I got, <laughs> But if I'd interviewed with two tough teams, like a window, like the Windows team and then like another division of the Windows team, I would have been, I wouldn't have gotten a job at Microsoft and everything would have been different. Um, luck plays a, a large role. But anyway, so what happened is that was like that, that stroke of luck getting in there was my ticket to getting just my, my entire identity, my entire ego just destroyed over the next, you know, five to seven years. In a positive or a negative way, ego well, can be good or bad. Well, it had a negative. Sorry, it had a it had a very positive outcome, but it was a brutally, brutally, brutally painful process uh, because you know I, I didn't really know this, but I had I had done that same thing I was talking about. Like I had I had defined myself my whole life as one of the smart 
the smart kids, you know, smart. That was my identity. And to go someplace where I was just average. And not only was I average, but a lot of people around me had a lot better habits, a lot more discipline, a lot more, you know, there was, <laughs> and like, I mean, um, I spent, and I, and I would, I would tend to try to put myself in very important places. I try to, I try to get myself involved in the, in the difficult projects. Like I would sort of throw myself, I, I called it throwing myself in front of the bus, you know, yeah. like get, get out there in the, in the intersection and then adapt. Um, but that put me in some very, very stressful situations. And like Lars, there was even a six month period at Microsoft, six entire months consecutive where I was nauseous after every single meal to the point of gagging, like, 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 like throwing up, but not actually having anything come up because of I the lived, stress or why? Yeah. Okay. Because of the stress. And I lived like that for six months. In fact, I didn't have to even eat anything. There were, uh, it's kind of funny. Like there was almost, I, I figured out there's almost like a place as I was driving to work every morning, you could have like gotten out with a can of paint and spray painted a line across the road and called it the nausea line. Cause as I got close to Microsoft, as I crossed that line, I would start gagging in the car. <laughs> it was brutal. Um, and, uh, but it did force me to construct a new identity, right? It's like the old adage of, you know, tear yourself down and build yourself back up. And um, so that was, you know, I had to go to essentially like the equivalent, it's like, like a house, like stripping it down to just the, you know, the, the skeleton inside, just the studs of the house. Like there was like nothing left of me. <laughs> and then once I had nothing left to lose, essentially, uh, I could start, I could start developing a, a sort of a new way of working and a new identity. And um, you know, the podcast that I did with Dave Gaynor, you know, we, we talked a lot. I mean, like, he, he's very modest, so, like, we didn't really truly capture the 100% of the essence. But, like, I rebuilt myself on Dave Gaynor's time, like, with his with his support and his tutelage. And um, so um, that was kind of the turning point after probably six years at Microsoft. Um, you were talking about loneliness and this, um, that this can become a problem for people in a company. You more or less decided uh, to, to leave Microsoft and do yeah, Power Pivot Pro on your own. And in the beginning, you were a one-man show, right? Yeah. Um, and you, and maybe I'm doing some people in the community injustice, I'm not quite sure, but in my perception, you were the first person carrying the, the Power BI torch. Um How did you feel back then? Was it, you must have been lonely. I definitely had a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a, it was a blessing and a curse, mostly a blessing that like my unique experiences, like the path that I had just sort of randomly taken through my career to that point in time gave me Uh, a piece of information that I really think no one else on the planet had uh, at, at that moment, which was how much this new DAX and data modeling, which which we only really knew of as, as Power Pivot at the time, but now it's, you know, it's the same, it's the beating heart of Power BI. Um, it's the same, it's the same stuff fundamentally. Um, I got to see that that was going to be just incredibly disruptive to the BI industry as we knew it. And 
it, again, it, I, it isn't something. It wasn't something special about me. It was something special about the the things that that I had seen. No one had seen specifically the same things I had seen. Like you, you I had I lucked into this information that this was going to be so disruptive. And so, the reason why I was the only one blogging and and you know and talking and advocating this stuff so hard in the community for so long was because I did. It's like I'd been given like a sneak peek of the future, and. I actually believed in it more, I think, at that point in time than really even anyone at Microsoft did. That would have been my next question. Because the tool was basically in Excel. And of course, this is the most spread, spreadsheet software on this planet. Uh -huh. But um, I, I talked back in the days to some professional BI developers working with multidimensional and they were more or less laughing about this tiny tool in Excel. And um, how, how could you have been so confident? I mean, you were preaching the, the data revolution 10 years back already. Well, you know, I guess the only way to answer that is to get a little bit into the detail of the things I had seen. Yeah. Do so, you know? please. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'd had some very interesting jobs that, um, and there's really th three jobs at Microsoft that I'd had that were necessary. Without without these three, you know, I needed the triangle. Without these three, I would have just had a line and I wouldn't have had any visibility whatsoever into what was going on. But so I'd, I'd worked on Excel. Uh, I'd been uh, essentially in charge of the business intelligence focused feature set in in Excel. Uh, for the 2007 release. And so I got to know the analysis services team, you know, Amir and Christian and Marius and all those people. Um, I think Jeffrey might have been there already. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, um, I got to know all those people and I got to know, most importantly, I got to know in that time frame, I got to know the Excel crowd. And very specifically, I got to know the VLOOKUP and PIVOT crowd. Uh, very, very, very specific, uh, and incredibly widespread. You know, there's, there's tentatively or, or not tentatively, like conservatively, we could estimate this between uh, uh, the VLOOKUP and Pivot crowd is somewhere between like 30 and and 80 million people worldwide. It's okay. like the, it's the it's the largest, you know, professional developer segment anywhere, <laughs> and they don't think of themselves as developers, right? So, but I got to know those people really, really well as part of that whole project and the way that they work and the way that their roles work and what the, what they're you know what they do at work and how people treat them and how people essentially like undervalue them and disrespect them and, and you know and like and yet the world runs on their backs mm -hmm. so i got to know that audience okay and that was that was kind of a sad thing to learn right like you know, my all these all these really really awesome people out there that weren't being appreciated okay so that, that i kind of filed that away uh, and then i went And I did something which, um, uh, in hindsight, was really kind of a, a silly and kind of stupid thing to do. Um, I had become a big deal on the Excel team. Like, I was respected. Uh, you know, I was moving up. And But then Microsoft announced they were getting into fantasy football uh, as, a, uh, as an actual product <laughs> over on the MSN side of the world. And I was like, oh, hot damn. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go, right? And, um, and like, I mean, looking back, like, this is a really silly career move. I was working on one of the most important software products in the entire world. 
and was influential, you know, and and respected. And I and I it was it was hard fought, hard won respect. Like it was it wasn't like, you know, again, I started from nothing. You know, I had I was a zero when I started working. So like and and then just to kind of walk away from all of that. I mean, like there were a lot of people looking at me just shaking their heads like this guy doesn't get it. Uh, and I didn't, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out to be crucial because um, over on that product, on the Microsoft Fantasy Football product, we needed like differentiating features, like really exciting stuff. Because the Fantasy Football marketplace was already like basically commoditized at that point. Like uh, Yahoo and ESPN and CBS and you know, sites like that had just dominated that and everybody was locked in. Like everyone, it's kind of like trying to get people to switch from Azure to AWS or vice versa, right? Like these people, by default, the inertia is you stay with the provider you used last year. Like why would a customer switch platforms? Yeah. Uh, so we needed switching, you know, bait. And one of the things I came up with was, well, let's do the Excel services front end on the web as a front end over analysis services, multidimensional. Like this was the release I had just worked on in 2007. I was now working on a web property for MSN and like, okay, let's do this. Excel, Excel services front end. We will have the single best statistical front end for looking at NFL statistics that the world has ever seen. Like, None of, no one in that community had ever seen the the equivalent of like a an OLAP cube <laughs> uh, fronted by an interactive interface. Like it, it was just going to be amazing, you know. Haven't uh, haven't cube formulas been introduced with 2007? Yes, cube formulas came in in 2007 as well. Yeah. Uh, a lot of so um, a lot of things happened in 2007. So like the the table feature in Excel mm -hmm. happened in 2007. Uh, pivot tables got overhauled in a big time way in 2007 you know like it went from the drag drop of little capsules into the sheet to the checkbox and and four drop zone field list that we we sort of take for granted today um uh and cube formulas came in and all the people on my team you know i, I wasn't i wasn't directly responsible for any of that awesome stuff i just you know there were individuals on my team like howie was drove cube formulas and Joe Chirilov, you know, Howie Dickerman drove cube formulas and Joe Chirilov drove the table and uh, Alan Fulting was in charge of the pivot table stuff, right? And so, you know, I had an all-star team and all I had to do was just like not mess it up. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so then I, so then I messed it up and, and, and went to MSN. Um, and so, uh, but I couldn't do MDX. I couldn't do multidimensional. I couldn't do SSIS. You know, I, I, I could not be a developer for this stuff. So I had to hire a consultant. And we did. We hired a consulting firm local in Seattle that worked closely with Microsoft. We paid them a lot of money. Uh, and I got to be the stakeholder for a BI project. Why is so, Microsoft engaging external consultants for their own products? Well, I mean, that's... That's that's always true. For a long time, even at P3, for a long time, our 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 most valuable customer in terms of um, revenue was the Microsoft uh, Finance Organization. Um, as far as I know, there's still some dashboards and and reports that are being used by the CFO that we built. Interesting. Uh, 
I mean, it it's hard to imagine. So, so two things. Number one, um, well, there's so much to talk about. <laughs> How late can you stay up, Lars? Um, long, very long. Uh, all right, all right. Well, you know, we we can. We, I'm 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 good. Um, so here's the thing. If you're an organization, the the analogy that I give people is: if you're an organization that builds um, racing cars, you know, Formula One, whatever, like you know, that's what your your engineers that build race cars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't expect everyone work, all those engineers working at that company, to be amazing race car drivers. Surely not. You, just, you yeah. wouldn't you wouldn't expect it, right? For some reason. We expect everyone that works at Microsoft to be amazing at using the software that they build. Uh, it's the same thing, though. <laughs> like, you spend all your time engineering the software, and you don't have time to become good at using it. <laughs> like the, I, I remember when the Excel MVPs would come to town for the MVP Summit. Hmm. This was a terrifying event for the product team. Like, because, you know, the, the developers, the programmers on Excel had been around Excel for so long. It was, a, it was that was a, like a lifetime job. If you became a good Excel developer on the Excel team, you stayed a long time. But for program managers like me, oh, that was like a stopover. People would just flow through there. Like they, you know, and like every, every few years, there'd be this new crop of young program managers that knew nothing about Excel that the developers had to like take under their wing and like teach them, you know, it was like, it was really, really kind of funny. And so um, for the program managers like me, the Excel MVPs coming to town was, was just an opportunity to look terrible. Like over and over and over again, you get up and, and present to these people, the MVPs, and you present to, you, to them your plans for what you're going to do to their software. And, you know, you can't even get five minutes in before it becomes apparent to everyone in the room the MVPs and you and your colleagues, that all the MVPs know what they're talking about 10 times better than you do. Like, your ideas are stupid <laughs> because, because you don't use the product enough. Now, this has gotten better. You know, I'm, I'm speaking of how Microsoft was and the program managers were back then. And even though there were program managers that actually did know what they were doing, um, but it wasn't the norm. It, the majority of us were, were new. For example, I worked on Excel for a year and a half before I knew what a pivot table was actually for. Okay. You know? <laughs> like, I just, I didn't know. Um, and it was like one day I had this problem, this data problem. And I'm looking at the data. I'm going, there's got to be a way to summar- you know, summarize this. And I go, oh, maybe that's what pivot tables are for. <laughs> You know, but you couldn't admit that again, like it was just uh, such a terrible, terrible fear of being exposed. Right. So like you, you can't just go to someone and or at least I felt I couldn't go to someone and say, look, I don't get it. What's a pivot table? <laughs> and um, but like I would say pivot. Right. Like, you know, oh, yeah, you pull the. I could say in a in a in a meeting like, yeah, you pull the data in. Then, you know, you can chart it. You can pivot it, blah, 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 because I'd learned to emulate what others said. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't know what a pivot table was. It also took me a year and a half to stop coming up with feature ideas for Excel. Wouldn't it be cool if Excel could do this? Uh, and then I would come up with an idea and someone would say, yeah, we already have that. And I didn't know it. You know, it was like a year and a half before I stopped coming up with ideas that we already had. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but the other thing about Microsoft is that you got to remember that 
or or recognize that this is an organization that has like cosmic volumes of money flowing through it. It's just it's, you can't even imagine, you know, being you know like normal people like us, right? Like what it's like to be like the CFO of Microsoft and have this river. Uh, it's just like it's like <laughs> just a river of money flowing. You know, like the biggest river in the world couldn't carry this much money, you know, <laughs> on how, barges. How, how many employees do they have? 400,000 or something? I don't even know anymore. Hmm. It, But like, and the, the profit per employee is ridiculously high even still. So like, it would be silly for the CFO's office at Microsoft to become, like for the Microsoft, for the CFO of Microsoft to, to go and learn Power BI would be a really, really silly and inefficient thing to do. For the CFO himself uh, yeah. or himself for the, for the, for the CFO, yeah, for the CFO to do it, or even for like the next level down of management, or the next level down of management from that, like yeah. you know, it, it just makes more sense for them to be making decisions and go hire someone like us to do the relatively, from honestly, like low value work compared to what they have to do. Hmm. So um, anyway, so but let's go back. Of course, I had to hire a consultant. It's not like I could have gone and gotten the SSIS program management team and you know the, the analysis services program management team to come over and build this for me. They were too busy. Yeah, it makes sense. Not a lot of spare time uh, if you work at Microsoft. So, so I had to outsource it. And I got further lucky in that the person, the, the uh, consultant that was assigned to me from Hitachi Consulting, was a guy named Aachen, Aachen Uslu. Uh, really good, really good person. Uh, great, great human being, very technically skilled, but he's from Turkey and he didn't know American football. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. So because of that, this actually, and I didn't realize this at the time, only in hindsight that I realized this, this actually resembled a realistic BI project. Because here I was, the subject matter expert who couldn't execute. That's how it always is, right? The person who works at the business knows the, all the nuances of that business. And that you bring in the, this, this third-party developer who's good at the tools but knows nothing about your business. And then you have your high communication costs. Incredibly Bam. high. Yeah. Incredibly high. Now, if he had been some American guy who'd also been a football fan, I would have missed an important piece of information and Power Pivot Pro would have never happened. P3 would have never happened and because it would have been just like instantaneous. Like we'd both just be sitting there just like going, yeah, 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 football cube. <laughs> <laughs> and he would just gone and built it and we'd have been done. But I had to, I had to teach him football. Mm -hmm. And it turned out even teaching him something as constrained as American football It's very constrained and narrow relative to like a business domain. That was very, very difficult. It took a long time. Um, anyway, so that went under. They pulled the plug on that project and I was suddenly like, I was folded into Bing. Uh, <laughs> What was that I, like? Bing? Uh, that, was, that was not fun. Um, like, um, the program managers had a very, very different job uh on bing than they did like in office um you know think about bing there's not much there's not much user interface not much you know the mm. Bing. 
it's all behind the scenes, you know, uh, it's all the algorithms and storage and retrieval and response time and all that kind of stuff. It's an, um, uh, it's an amazing engineering project, but there's not a lot of need for like, you know, customer analysis and like empathy. Um, and, uh, and that was the job that I was used to from Excel. So the program managers on Bing were basically like clipboard holders, project managers for the, for the developers. That's the right role for them. And that's never been my strength as a, as a professional. And so uh, sooner or later, I had to get out of there. And that's when Amir came calling and said, hey, I got this Project Gemini thing going on. Why don't you come over and take a look at it, you know? And uh, I took like one second of looking at Project Gemini and said, <laughs> oh, my God. If I'd, so I looked at him, Amir, I said, so if we had this, I wouldn't have had to hire Hitachi Consulting to do that cube for me. He's like, mm. yeah. This this is something that I could understand, like the VLOOKUP and Pivot crowd. I was like, oh my God. Because I had tried so many times to build cubes. Yeah. I So many times. And every time I had failed. The, the learning curve for MDX was just way too steep. And, like, not, and not only MDX, I think. I have no experience in, in uh, multidimensional. But because of the uh, episode I had with Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wong, um, I recognized that in... Uh, multi-dimensional cubes you were not able to load a single line of data before this whole thing was defined with yeah w which which data type to which column which table what i don't think it works in tables uh, people will uh, notice that i have no clue about it but um the good thing is in, in power bi you have this agile working you can load data mm -hmm. see oh i don't get the figure i i want to have yeah. and yeah yeah work on it yeah the 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 Vertipak engine and DAX and all of that has got multiple things going for it that the multidimensional model didn't, you know. So one of them is that that DAX itself is much more Excel-like in when you start out. Uh, whereas MDX brought all of its complexity to the simplest of formulas. Even writing an if in MDX required you to learn everything about hierarchies. Like it just had this amazing upfront cost, hmm. mental, mental upfront cost that I was not willing to pay or, or maybe even able to pay. Right? It's hard to tell the difference sometimes. <laughs> um, so, um, so there's that. Plus there's these other things you're talking about, right? You have to go and define all these logical structures that you don't even really understand what the implications of them are going to be, but you have to do them in order to get anywhere. Yeah. And then on top of that, there's this incredibly expensive reprocessing step that has to happen over and over and over when you're building a multidimensional yeah. cube that requires you to wait to see if your change has the desired effect. It interrupts your workflow, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, for 30 minutes at a time. The, the net result of all of that is that you, the tool does not remotely flow with your sort of stream of consciousness thought at all. And it, it actively fights you. <laughs> instead of flowing with you. And um, like the, the people don't, I know people love this tool. They love Power BI, but until you've, I, I think most people don't, don't have the perspective of what it was like relative to multidimensional. And as a result, they don't understand like this, this tool that we all love is even better than you think. It is a, it is a miracle. Yeah, it is just a miracle. <clears throat> this engine, 
Uh, and I'm talking about it. I had nothing to do with it. <laughs> like when I worked on the Power Pivot team, I worked on the UI of the of the Power Pivot add-in. I got to watch the engine folks. I got to watch the DAX team a little bit. Um, but uh, you know, I, I don't get to claim any credit for you know the this like wondrous invention. So anyway, to close the loop now. So I've had the VLOOKUP and Pivot experience uh, from the Excel the Excel team lens. I've had the experience of hiring, of being a customer of BI, of being a customer of Microsoft BI via hiring a consulting organization. Uh, and just, I got, I, got a, I got a front row seat for how awful that was. But I didn't know how awful. I didn't have anything to compare it to. And then I got to work on the Power Pivot thing. Then, when I left Microsoft, um, I got the, I guess, it's a, I guess it's a square, not a triangle, like the fourth piece of experience, which was I, I re-implemented the football project using Power Pivot. That's the thing I did on the blog when I started. I still remember that, yes. The great football project, right? <laughs> Go back and do the thing, you know, let's test it. It's supposed to let me do this without hiring Hitachi Consulting. Me, the VLOOKUP and Pivot guy, right? I, had, I did not think it was going to work. I was positive it wasn't going to work. I was positive it was going to suck. But I needed to write about something. I needed some sort of ambitious project to sort of keep me going. And, I, and so, like, I, you know, I sort of threw down the gauntlet. Folks, I'm going to reimplement this project. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, this is going to go poorly. Because, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I just was so cynical about software at that point, especially V1 software. I mean, it's just, you know, it's never any good, right? So I was thinking to myself, like, okay, I'm going to start building this thing. And when it starts to fail, when it starts to fail at its mission, I'm going to have to find some delicate way to conceal that it's failing. That's what I thought when I started this, like at the end of 2009. How, how long did this project take you? In the end, you, not, you finalized it, right? I mean, no, not, not, not very long. But like it, it was also kind of cool that it never had to be done. Yeah, sure, no pressure. Um, well, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even that. It was more like, like when you hire a consultant, you, you pay for a certain amount of time. When the time runs out, you've got to be done. Hmm. Well, you know, it didn't have to be that way with me, the subject matter expert, building it. Like I could have an idea, you know, sometimes I would. Like six months later, I'd have an idea and go back and add something to the Great Football Project. It didn't cost me anything, hmm. you know? Um, and, uh, but the moment it happened... It was like three o'clock in the morning one night. I'm sitting in my, my office, my home office in Cleveland. And I'm working on this blog post. And I started to write um, a measure. Uh, and I hadn't done too many, you know, I, I hadn't done much DAX at that point. But I started to write like sort of the very first measure in the Great Football Project. Uh, the early blog post, I was just like getting the data loaded and like doing like really kind of mundane things. Just sort of like, you know, kind of get my confidence up. Then I wrote a measure. The first measure I wrote was rushing yards. And you don't have to know American football. I don't care. It's not important. <clears throat> it's just the most fundamental metric that you can come up with for in this data set. You know, it'd be like, it's like the equivalent of revenue dollars, sales dollars. It's that, it's, it's that measure. Okay. It's a simple sum. Uh, and I was writing it. And um, because I knew the data and I knew the business domain the business domain, the football domain, right? I was able to, I'm just sort of like 
effortlessly looking through the data going, okay, rows like that don't count. Rows like that shouldn't count, all this kind of stuff. And so I just kind of like effortlessly wrote this, this calculate, this simple calculate measure that filtered out all of the rows that shouldn't count towards the rushing yards measure. Mm -hmm. eh, it just took me, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, but then it was right. And I'm looking at a pivot table at that moment in time that matched like at every last little leaf note of detail, as well as the grand totals, exactly what was like on the ESPN site for those same years. We're talking, you know, tens of thousands of records involved, you know, and it's matching like to the penny. <laughs> and at that moment, this huge wave of like deja vu or nostalgia rushed over me. And I remembered, it all came rushing back to me, that we had started with the rushing yards measure back with Hitachi Consulting too. It was the natural first measure to write. We had done that. Yeah. And it took us like two weeks. Ooh. It took us, it took us two weeks to get that measure right because of this back and forth, right? I'd tell them, hey, it's this column of numbers, that number, sum that up. So we'd sum it up. I get a, I get a report back. I, he'd say, here's your cube. You know, a few days later, I get a cube. So I got <laughs> I got to connect Excel to it, you know? And I go look and like, all the numbers are too high at the grand total level. I'm like, well, that's wrong. But I can't tell them it's wrong. I got to tell them how it's wrong, right? So I've got to start drilling down and looking lower and lower and lower in detail, looking for a place where he's including a number that shouldn't be included. I ended up having to like crawl through the, the full text play-by-play -play descriptions of games, like play-by-play, -play, going row-by-row you know, in, in a pivot table and row by row in this, you know, ESPN browser window, right? Trying to find the discrepancy. And then I go, oh, look, that play was called back due to a penalty. That play didn't count. You, you can't count that. So the wrong filters. Right. So I tell him, you got to filter out penalty play. So there's another column I'd forgotten. You know, I didn't think to tell him about this. There's another <laughs> column that indicates it's a penalty or not. Okay. So the numbers get closer, but they're still off. I still have to keep digging down. It, like there's so many little subtleties like this and peeling this onion with this asynchronous communication cost. And by the way, like my time as the subject matter expert was being as hijacked, as monopolized as the developer. Yeah. Like the developer was sitting idle half the time while I continued to pay for his time, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> it was like a, we had like a month, you know? It was like $50,000 for a month. Crazy. Something like that, right? So, but then I was busy. Like, I was supposed to be designing other features for this application. But instead, I'm like debugging this damn cube. <laughs> and like, and this went back and forth forever. And I did that like in 10 or 15 minutes without even thinking about it. Because I'm looking at the data. Like, I'm running my fingers through the data, you know, like like, like running through like a field of, of wheat, you know? Like, I can feel the texture of, I see all of it. I just sort of like effortlessly add all the right filters and just get the right answer. And at that moment, I sat back in my chair, like a lightning bolt had hit me and said, oh my God, the world is about to change. You know? Yeah. And And everything that... I became associated with saying and advocating for over the next couple of years. I sort of like knew in that moment, 
I knew that that projects were going to be tremendously faster, like a hundred times faster than they had been. When was that? In 2010? That would have been very early in 2010, like maybe like January or February. And I was technically still a Microsoft employee at the time. Hmm. Um, my, my official leave date for Microsoft was February of 2010. But um, there's, a, there's a complicated story behind all that that maybe we'll get into, maybe we won't. But, <laughs> um, and, uh, but yeah, like early 2010, I knew that projects were going to be a lot faster. And then I, and then I knew because of that, I knew that projects were going to be a lot more affordable because they were basically priced by time. So, the traditional business model for BI consulting firms of like you land big, slow-moving projects was going to turn into lots and lots of smaller, faster-moving projects. Um, because as as the price point went down, there'd be more demand. Like the the, the the market would support paying for a lot more projects. And in the beginning, in 2010, it was a cost-free um, add-in. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. why shouldn't you start a project with it? That's right. And, um, but you're right. Like, uh, no one in the Excel universe really knew how much this was going to change things. And the traditional BI world was busy rejecting it because, A, it was in Excel, and, B, it was a threat they thought it was a threat to their livelihood, <laughs> you know? And so I, I had a lot of, um, you know, contentious arguments um, with, with the traditional crowd, um, most of which have been kind of repaired over time. You know, like we've, 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 we've made peace, you know? Um, but for a while there, it wasn't at all clear that, you know, that, Uh, I don't remember ever having any arguments with Marco and Alberto specifically, but for a while there, it wasn't at all clear that that, that, that Marco and Alberto would end up switching to DAX. You know, they were the MDX pros. I guess I guess they wrote it in in one of their books in the in the foreword. I think um, there are a couple of people from the MDX team uh, influenced them to take a deeper look at DAX. And that changed the career. I, I might be wrong, but I guess I well, remember I mean, that. It, it makes it makes total sense, you know. I also think there's there. Those are very savvy fellows, right? They they would not have allowed this disruptive threat to develop on their flank for too long without paying attention to it, even if they hadn't been nudged. Uh, um, you know, knowing those knowing those two, like they they were, it was inevitable. Um, but I remember many years ago now, it was probably seven years ago, sitting down to dinner with Marco and Alberto when they were here over here in the U.S. for a conference. And I asked them, like, okay, so if you've given your choice right now, if you start a brand new project and the customer doesn't care, before I, before I can even finish the question, Marco goes, yeah, we're going to use uh, tabular. We're not going to use multidimensional. He knew, he knew the question. He didn't even <laughs> need me to finish it. Wow. And I think one thing you, you shouldn't or you cannot ignore is um, you said that um, the traditional BI people were reluctant. They didn't like the idea of having tabular, especially in Excel. But the people who were developing it were the same who developed the professional BI yeah, product. Yeah, so they yeah. must have had a vision. And when you hear Amir talking about the product and when you 
um, hear uh, Jeffrey Wong saying that Amir was talking about the self-service BI tsunami um, they were struggling with. Uh, you get an idea what they were thinking about. Yeah, and I think the Microsoft, like, you know, the, the Microsoft, uh, essentially like the MVPs of, of MDX and multidimensional, there was a little bit of a feeling amongst them, and this is totally natural. It's, there's nothing wrong with this. There was a little bit of almost like a feeling of like betrayal in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, like Microsoft, you you have gone and like you're going out now with a message that you don't need us. Is kind of what what it felt like. Yeah. Of course, things didn't land like that at all. <laughs> like, you know, business has never been better for Marco and Alberto. <laughs> because in the same dynamic that I was seeing in 2010, which was that the world's total demand for real BI was going to go through the roof. It's just that you had to approach it differently. You had to structure your business differently. Um, and I, I can't really speak to, you know, the way that SQL BI, the way that they run their business. I mean, you know, I'm sure that, but like, they don't operate their business the same way that they used to. They have adapted what they do uh, to this new world. And it's been very, very, very good to them. <laughs> you know, um, And, you know, our company is is staffed, organized, run, incentivized, designed from the ground up. And that's not, that's not a, um, an exaggeration to lean into this new, this new world. Be, be, because you're mentioning your company, you've been this one-man show. And when I remind your blog posts and when I remind myself to the time back in 2010, 11, 12, uh, you were very euphoric. It, it looked like, even though I, I didn't know you, just read your post, that you were really into the topic, that you liked what you could do with it. Then you created your company for whatever reason. We can talk about this in a second. And of course, your role must have changed completely. Did you know what will be in front of you, how you have to change and how your role will be different? And did you like that? No, I had, I had no idea. Um, I had no idea how hard it was going to be um, to the extent that if I had known how hard this was going to be, I might have actually hesitated and not done it. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of, you know, advantage in being naive and that you actually go and get started. Um, Only and, if um, you're adaptive. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, I see what you did there. I appreciate that. Cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I, you know what I, men I mentioned earlier that when I found myself on Bing, I didn't find myself to be terribly valuable. You know, like like the the project management and like helping develop like the behind the scenes, you know, machinery of it didn't really appeal to me. Like, again, it's that mixture of like, either I couldn't do it or didn't want to. And, and you know, the, those two things are hard to differentiate. Usually it's a mixture of both. Um, you know, I, oh boy, I, I significantly underestimated the, the difficulties in creating a company that operated on the business model that, 
that I saw. You know, I had I had great clarity about the business model. Like, and, and I guess even calling it the business model is is giving myself too much credit. I had I had I had great confidence in in like okay, the, the nature of the work is going to be this. It's going to be high velocity, large number of projects. You know, with one order of magnitude reduction in in revenue per project. You know, I knew mm. that. Um, and I even sort of knew what the types of people were that we needed to hire. But boy, is business tough. <laughs> you know, like, and so um, I didn't know how bad I was going to be at at designing an actual business. Like, it's 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 weird. It's one of those things that's like hard to even explain unless you already know what I'm talking about. Um, like, you know, I had a very simplistic view of, of business, like, Hey, like people want this service. It's a valuable service. You charge them for it. (laughs) Ta-da business. And it's not like that. It's, it is not like that. (laughs) We talked about on it when you were on our show, like you were a, a, either a business controller or a financial controller or a financial controller. We still don't know the difference between the three, (laughs) you know? Um, but so you, you have more insight into, uh, you know, what it actually takes to run a business than from that, from that, that prior role, uh, then certainly than probably than I do today, but, but at least let's say, let's say, let's say, you know, let's say that I'm on par today, but boy, in 2015, when I really started turning this into a scaled thing where it wasn't just going to be me anymore. 2015, Rob Colley knows knew nothing about running a business relative to what what you know you know from your your prior role, the prior chapter in your life. But you, you you're talking about scaling, and of course you did that when uh, when you uh, created your company. But when when I go through LinkedIn or other forums like this, there are so many people who tell me I need to scale to be successful. And uh, as, as with keynote speakers, there are more keynote speakers than keynotes um, today. <laughs> there are more people <laughs> who want to tell me how to create a successful business than there are successful businesses. Um, why did you feel the, the motivation to do that? Did you have so many uh, um, clients, potential clients, and you were not able to... to um yeah do do all the work what was the motivation you know so many things in life do come down to uh you know a a confluence of factors you know and it's not just like any one thing but there were there were a handful of very specific things like number one yeah there was more business coming to my door than i could do than i could than i could service that was one thing for sure and so it was kind of like i was wasting it now, remember, yeah. at that point in time, I had spent five years being the only person on the planet who was like all in on this stuff. Yeah. There had been a number of people, an increasing number of people who were sort of partially in over time. But given what I had seen, I was all in for five years, you know, in a way like almost like running unopposed. So at, in 2015, the Power Pivot Pro blog, as silly as that website looked, uh, just was just dominant in all kinds of searches, you know, like our organic page rank was through the roof, uh, back then. And it didn't look silly. 
Uh, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Stick figure website. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, so yeah, I was I was getting an even though the market was the total amount of demand in the market was still very small back then relative to today, my market share was was incredibly high. <laughs> so yeah. um, I was running into a situation that probably a lot of people don't run into today, which is. Like, I mean, there was a multiple of demand coming in relative to what I could service. Um, and that's something that really, you know, I'm sure it happens to some people, but like, that's a, you know, overwhelming, that's a first mover type of thing, hmm. you know? And so, so I knew that I was letting, I was letting opportunities slip by. So had to do something about that. At the same time, I was also, I was also starting to get a little bit tired. Like... It was um it was a hard life um for me uh trying to service all of this stuff. Sure. And I and I also think I was starting to get a little bit of a sense of that I wasn't going to end up being personally Rob Colley wasn't I I personally wasn't going to be like durably the number one expert on this stuff for too much longer. Like I was starting to meet people who were kind of latecomers to the party relative to me, yeah. who were turning out to be so much better at it than I was. And um, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? So there's a shelf life. You know, there's a shelf life on, on, on being, you know, like the dominant brand uh, in, in the market. Um, so in the back of my head, I'd always had this, image of this company that operated differently and was staffed differently. And if I was ever going to do it, that was sort of the time to do it. You know, so um, I didn't wrestle with it. It wasn't, it didn't really seem like it was, it wasn't much of a, it wasn't a difficult decision. It was just something that, that had to happen. Um, but, you know, without, you know, trying to make a long story short, without getting into too much detail, like, this is where hubris and ego come back in again. Like, again, I just sort of underestimated how hard it was to build a business. But at the same time, I very, you know, I very much held on to the steering wheel. Uh, and it was only at the, the point where I decided to let go of the steering wheel or at least overwhelmingly share it with Kellen that we really started to figure out how to truly build the company, how to organize the company, how to, you know, how to run it. Um, and... You know, I credit Kellen with you know, he—he's the—he's the genius, and I—I I, I use that word very deliberately. He's the genius that cracked this riddle of how to build a company that worked on this business model because it turned out to be harder than I expected. Was he a friend of yours, or, or no? Where? No, he was a stranger originally. Okay. Um, like in 2015, when I I first decided to start sharing the workload. I designed the first version of the interview of death, the, uh, the, the, the screener interview that we use um, to, to decide, you know, sort of to, to figure out who we should hire out of our applicants. And um, so I sent that out to a bunch of people. Um, and Kellen was one of the first few to pass it. It was a very, very, very small pass rate, like, you know, <laughs> okay. single digit percentage. Like I think, our, I think our overall pass rate over the years has been like 2%. Um, and so he was, you know, at first, you know, quote unquote, just Kellen was just someone 
he wasn't even a full-time employee. I didn't have full-time employees at the, originally. Like we just, just sort of, it was all part-time hourly work contractors. And um, he was doing a bunch of, bunch of work. He was, he was taking on, he was being, you know, he was playing the Rob role, like what I've been doing. Like he was building things for clients and teaching classes and things like that. He was doing all the things I'd been doing. And again, looking over his shoulder, it wasn't just him, but looking over his shoulder, I was like, mm, he's better at this than I was. He's, he's even better. <laughs> it, was, you know, it was kind of sobering. Um, so it, it took a long time for me to, for it to come into focus, like how lucky I'd been to, to cross paths with him and like what he was actually capable of. And it's, it's even harder in a remote company to, to sort of learn to trust each other. Yeah, um, for sure. And so, um, have yeah. you been, I mean, old, have you been a remote company forever? Oh yeah. From the beginning. Okay. Um, when we started doing this, uh, you know, there weren't many people in the world that could actually do the work. Yeah. And so I had just moved to Indianapolis at the time. And so it wasn't like I could say, Hey, you've got to be in Indianapolis. If I wanted to restrict that filter, the geographic <laughs> filter, good luck. Uh, right. Uh, what was the quality level I was going to find? I was going to trade off quality and expertise for geography. And that didn't make sense to me. Hmm. So I threw a you know, completely wide net, the entire country. Um, and that allowed me to hold the quality bar like almost unfairly high. And that's when I started finding people like Kellen, uh, who just, they, they almost like shouldn't ex exist. They're so good, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, um, but Kellen has a lot of experience from previous roles, like running businesses and he was an operations person. Mm -hmm. that's, I think that's a really important word, operations. I've never been an operations person. Um, and so, yeah, so your original question, you know, was you know, my, my changing role and what that felt like and everything. Um, well, first of all, I didn't know how much my role needed to change. I didn't know how inadequate I was going to be at certain components of building this business. I didn't, I didn't come to terms with the fact that I needed to um, essentially share, share control. You know, it took me a while to, to, to realize that. And, and, um, and then, and then another phase after that of, of you talk about imposter syndrome yeah, is like, you know, imagine what it's like to be the person that sort of saw this 10 years ago. Uh, you know, Ooh, we need this company and we go and we build that company. But at some point, like you, you realize me, right. That like, you're not as important to that company as you thought you were going to be. Um, like, like I actually truly believe that um, Kellen is, you know, is more important to the company now than I am. Yeah. That's a weird thing to come to terms with. Um, but as the company has grown and as, you know, our, our budget and capabilities have grown, there's been this exciting new era lately uh, which really we're still just just beginning where I get to go back to being the thing that I was good at. You know, messaging, evangelism, uh, you know, like cheerleading in a way, right? Explaining. And, and even though I'm not, you know, I, I, again, I've 
I'm the worst person at DAX at the company. <laughs> you know, like, no doubt. <laughs> Don't even get started on Power Query. Um, <laughs> you know, I still, I, I do think that that it wasn't, it wasn't my technical ability that made the blog so interesting to people. It wasn't my technical ability that made the book so interesting to people. It was the explanation. Yeah. It was the it was the dumbing it down that that was valuable. I guess it's something I already told you on on our episode on your show. It sounds crazy, but it's like this: um, that I try to digest the first version of um, the book of Marco and Alberto, and I wasn't able to to understand what they were talking about because it was written for BI people. I, at least I guess it was written with this audience in mind. And, yeah. and you expressed it for Excel people because you have been one of them. And that was a was a huge deal for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to dig into this thing. Yeah, I mean, something even a little bit embarrassing is that uh, when I was writing my book, their first book was already out. And I ran into something in my book. I forget what it was. It might have even been the greatest formula in the world and why and and the the extra all yeah. <laughs> it turned out to not be necessary. <laughs> But there was something in my book where about Dax where I was like, I don't know why this is the way it is. It might have been um uh that filter and row context tr uh, transition where if you put the name of a measure inside of a filter, it behaves differently than if you put, you know, the original aggregation formula yeah. version, uh, which is, you know, I think, one of the. It's necessary that I think that DAX works that way, but oh, it is not. <laughs> it is really, really unfriendly <laughs> to the beginner. <laughs> yeah, this implicit calculate is uh, hard oh, to understand. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like not only it's an implicit calculate, but then you also have to understand that calculate does something special, right? Yeah. It's 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 an implicit implicit. <laughs> it's like you're two steps removed from the answer, and like that. That problem, uh, even in my my consulting work, cost me like just weeks and weeks and weeks of, of pain and agony, uh, not understanding. But anyway, so I, I was writing, the, writing the, I was at this one page of the book, and I needed to ex provide an explanation of why something behaved the way it did, and I didn't understand. So I was like, "Oh, I bet, <laughs> I bet Marco and Alberto explained this." <laughs> so, so I go to open. And basically, what I was going to—it's—it's I mean, it's overly dramatic to say that I, I set out to plagiarize because you know I was going to go read what they what they wrote, understand it. This was the plan. Yeah, understand it, and then you know rewrite it <laughs> in, in my in my way, and no one could accuse me of plagiarism or you know, whatever, right? But like, I I got to the place. Or the explanation was for what I was looking for, and I couldn't understand it. I, I, I couldn't understand it well enough, and so I just gave up. And I forget what I did. Did I if I if I just decided to wing it, or just try to try to skip that explanation and hope no one noticed that I didn't explain it? Uh, I don't remember what I did, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, uh, you know, and everyone's gotten better, right? Like I. I've gotten better, like, you know, whatever I was struggling with back then, I know the real answer now. Um, and they've gotten much better at communicating with, you know, with mortals. Yeah. Um, and so, but it was an interesting time. <laughs> you, you can't even steal. <laughs> you can't even steal someone else's explanation. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, 
that was a failure. <laughs> I think I've told them that. Um, that's not. That's not. I will. I will that's, send, not, that's not. That's not a secret. I will send Mark you the link. <laughs> so let's make sure we circle back to your question about scaling. Yeah. You know. You know. I'm gonna turn the tables on you for a moment, and uh, and ask you. So, you know. I mean, <clears throat> I just got through telling you how hard it was. <laughs> Uh, and, um, and literally like the, some of the most, the second most stressful time in my life came during, you know, the growth of this company. The first most stressful was the nausea line driving into Microsoft, right? For six months. But, um, you know, <clears throat> have you considered it? Cause you're, you know, you're being told over and over again, it sounds like, you know, by the, not the community, but by the business, so-called business experts on LinkedIn, right? Yeah, that by, you, by, you scale. by strangers. I don't right, care. Right, I don't right. care. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, there you go. Um, you know, like, I'll ask the open-ended question, why not? I guess it depends on the goals you have. And I'm not saying that I don't consider it in a couple of years. But for now, being a father of young boys, my boys are three and a half years old now, um, I enjoy the freedom <clears throat> of being a freelancer. I can completely decide how I want to use my time. <clears throat> of course, not completely. The customers are still there. But uh, if I don't want to work tomorrow because I want to spend time with my kids, I say, I I'm busy, I can't, and that's it. I don't have to um, argue with someone. I don't have to deal with people. It's not that I don't like people. It's more the opposite. But... Um, I still struggle to, to organize myself. <laughs> then I have to organize a whole, whole company. Um, I don't know if that is something I could grow into. Is that an English term? Do you know? Mm -hmm. I, I could yeah. learn how to do this, but for now, I'm definitely not, not willing to try it. Yeah. <clears throat> I think. Well, you know, going back to my answer, one of the things that was wearing me out the most was um, all of the uh, the travel to teach classes. Teaching classes, getting on an airplane and going to teach classes was a big, big, big chunk of my life back then. It was a big chunk of our revenue, too. Uh, you know, the bulk of our income back then came from teaching classes yeah. rather than imp implementing projects. And I think part of that was because I had I had misread a little bit about the market that um, that that consulting was only going to be teaching, yeah, uh, or, or or overwhelmingly teaching, and that turned out to not be true. Um, you know, P three our revenue is is you know I don't I don't remember the exact number and it changes all the time, but like you know we're probably seventy five eighty percent consulting revenue, maybe higher actually like. Training is a um, is never going to go away, but you know it turns out what organizations need is <clears throat> is the ability to make better decisions very quickly. Yeah, and it's a shorter path from A to B to just go and build the things with them that they need, and then explain to them how those things work if they need to make you know so that they can maintain them if they want. Than it is to teach them and then send them out on their own. Um, 
So we've, we've adapted to that over time. But the dynamic of getting on an airplane and going and teaching classes was really taking a toll on me because teaching classes is so energy intensive. Yeah, I, I noticed that myself. For me, I, I wouldn't have gotten into to, um, an airplane to, to teach classes. I do it all from home, right from the beginning. I, I traveled a bit, but um, since my boys are there, I, I didn't travel anywhere. And since the pandemic, <laughs> no, nobody traveled anywhere. Uh, but I, I really enjoy uh, giving classes remotely. And I have a lot of customers who are, how can I say, they are in doubt if this is something they want to try. But um, the, the technical um, opportunities you have today with uh, using a Stream Deck, using OBS or vMix to share different screens and having a good internet connection and all this audio stuff. I mean, the, you said the, the mic you're using was pretty cheap, but it sounds amazing. So this is something that raises the quality and reduces um, the need for, for traveling. Mm-hmm. Well, the only thing I found more exhausting than traveling to teach classes was teaching them remotely. <laughs> But it takes less time. <laughs> it does take less time. Oh, God. Like, um, like, I was always blown away at how fast an in-person training day went by. Yeah. And how slowly the remote training days went by. Really? And I, I think that turned out to be somewhat unique for me like I, i don't think most most uh, we've discovered that um our team most people on our team anyway i don't i don't think struggle with remote training in the way that i did not at all um and that's 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 great <laughs> because <laughs> because uh i mean i teaching classes remotely was like my own personal hell um i i don't know why it was so bad for me but but anyway so what i was getting around to is that like in today's, you know, with, with today's clarity and today's realities, if, if I, if 2015 me had, had just been doing a bunch of project work, I think some of, you know, I mentioned multiple factors that were driving me towards scaling. Yeah. But, but the exhaustion factor wouldn't have been nearly as high if that had been my day-to-day -day routine. You know, just like staying at home, solving problems, like that's fun. Uh, and, um, if that, if that had been the bulk of my work, I probably, well, I don't know, it, it would have been a different, it might've been a more difficult decision for sure, but that wasn't the way it was back then. <laughs> so. it, it's funny which, which, um, experience leads to certain decisions. As you said, it's not only one factor, it's a couple of factors and their combination and that <laughs> being ex exhausted leads to building up a company, I mean, building up the company must have been exhausting too. So yeah, you, you said yeah. you were a little naive in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the, uh, I don't know if, you know, it's so funny because like, I can't imagine conducting a podcast in another language, which is what you're doing right now. Yeah, and um, I'm I'm heavily so, scared, really. Well, you're, you're Still. doing, you're, I, I just, you're just, you're do, doing amazing. But like, There's an English saying, maybe maybe you've heard it, maybe there's a German equivalent, you know, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Have you heard that before? I, I get it. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if there's a, yeah. there's a German version <laughs> of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think there was something like that 
or it might have been th- th- the reverse of that is also, I think, just as funny. Out of the fire and into the frying pan. Yeah, I guess in German we say uh, vom Regen in die Traufe. From rain into the, I don't know how, how the um, box is called where all the rain runs into. I don't know. <laughs> into the cistern or yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I, I sort of, you know, dodged one stressful reality and, and jumped into another. Uh, I don't really know um how they compared but they were they were both they were both hard uh and uh very very grateful um that today you know we've we've had you know multiple years now of you know very stable and and very rapid growth um you know no no big no big business scares no no big business you know problems or anything like that it's, things have just been going pretty well even during covid um, our business, uh, we actually grew by single digit percentages in terms of revenue during the COVID during 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't big growth, but it wasn't any, it wasn't, it wasn't, no, de- know, no decline. Yeah. No decline. Um, and, um, you know, what we found, and I'm, I think a lot of people probably saw this is that new clients were hard to come by for, you know, I don't know, about six or seven months in there, maybe six months. Uh, people weren't interested in making a brand new relationship with a brand new, con- you know, like during during that time frame. Um, and I understand that. I mean, it's scary hiring. We've talked about this a number of times on our show. I think we talked about it a little bit even during our interview. Um, it's it's scary to hire a consulting firm. Sure. You know, even our track record at P3 of hiring other consulting firms to help us with like, you know, <clears throat> our business internals has been, you know, I don't know, 50% success rate at best. You know, like some, we've, we spent a lot of money on, on a couple of different consulting firms that ultimately left us, you know, no better off than when, <laughs> than when we started paying them. Okay. Um, and they, they weren't BI firms, obviously. I mean, we don't need that. We've got that, you know, plenty, but, um, so, um, you know, you don't want to take on a risk of hiring a, 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 your, your very own new parasite when, when things are hard, but the people who'd already learned to trust us, people who'd already been working with, they just needed us more because so much of their existing business map had been invalidated by this sudden change mm. in the marketplace and change in the world. Yeah, get and it. So when you need you need new maps drawn, well, you gotta you need you need people who are good at making maps. <laughs> and so, um, in fact, we became even more important. We had one very very large client of ours, a large company. It was also a large you know they, they you know it did a lot of work for them, but they were also one of our our larger clients in terms of just actual you know market cap. Uh, and they were struggling because of COVID. In fact, they were going into bankruptcy. Oh. This is an amazing story. I'll protect you know all the identity here. That's that's all you're going to learn about this company is that they were big, and they were going into bankruptcy. And um, you know what happens then when you're going into bankruptcy? Well, the first thing you do, one of the first things you do, is you shut down all vendor spending. You shut down all external. You know, you just shut it off. Yeah. And they did that. 
all these letters and notifications went out to all of their vendors, you know, we're not blah, 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 right? But then they took the extraordinary step of like contacting us and saying, but not you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we need you because, and like, in fact, we became, you know, during that crisis for them, we became, we worked our way, you know, we, were, we, we didn't work our way up. We were pulled up. We were pulled all the way up to the CEO of this publicly traded company because, you know, like so many companies, they had grown via consolidation and acquisition. Mm -hmm. So they had all these subsidiaries, right? And every subsidiary had its own like cash flow report. And you know how these things go. They're not very accurate. Uh, they run, they're only run like every 30 days, <laughs> you know, there's just, <laughs> and, um, and heaven help you rolling them all up to get an overall cash flow for the entire organization. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, they were in a business that was a good business. They'd never really needed to care about these sorts of things. You know, it's just like, well, money's still coming in. Everything's good. Who cares that we don't have a centralized cash flow, you know, uh, report that's 24 hour accurate. They, didn't, they never needed it, never had it. Well, guess what? <laughs> when you're in bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first you, thing you, you need, yeah. You need this, you know? And one of our consultants ended up on the phone uh, like at a, a 11 o'clock at night with um, someone, you know, with the CEO in Europe. Like, work, you know, real-time collaborating on building this thing. Uh, and we had never gotten to that level of exposure in this company beforehand. Mm -hmm. you know, necessity pulled the, you know, pulled it upwards. And, uh, and even while this company is going through this tremendous crisis on the phone call, when our consultant circles back and shows the, you know, the, the CEO, the C-level, the C-suite, what we've built for them, the CEO says, you know, you have the best job in the world. What a cool thing, right? Yeah. Like, like this, this person is, you know, facing, you know, like professional extinction <laughs> and is saying to us that we have the best, the best job in the world. Um, cool. Did and, you hire uh, him? <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no way we could afford. <laughs> I'm sure. I mean, even, even during bankruptcy, uh, an executive like that is making <laughs> probably about more money than our entire payroll. <laughs> Um, that, that's a great example of what is achievable with Power BI in, in regards of transparency in a, in a company. It's, yeah. It's pretty cool. And that, that sort of thing would have been in the old days, that had been a multi-year IT project. Yeah. For so many people, not only for yeah. one. Yeah. Like the only thing IT did the, those, those years. <laughs> have you, have you? Um, ever had the case um, that you turned down a Power BI project because people wanted you to do something with Power BI that it just wasn't designed for? Uh, I'm sure we have. I know we have. Um, you know, some of the examples that come to mind are the cases where we probably should have turned it down. Um, you know, I did a project for someone who ended up becoming a friend of mine uh, that turned out because DAX doesn't have recursion. Yeah. 
Um, I wasn't actually able to solve it, uh, and it overwhelmed me. And, um, and this was back in, this was probably early 2015 when it was still just me. I suspect that we have people on staff now that could have solved it, <laughs> even in DAX, especially as DAX has changed. There's been some new things added to DAX that make things a little bit easier. But, um, but yeah, I, um, I completely failed uh, in a project that probably I would have billed, if, if I'd been successful, I probably would have billed, you know, I don't know, twenty or $30,000 for this. Uh, in terms of the amount of time I put into it, but because I never succeeded, I never, I never, I never charged him. He's he would have paid me anyway, but it just, it just, you just, it just feels so wrong to send someone an invoice for you grinding your gears and and failing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you just like so. Um, and there's a couple other instances where like uh, we got into some things that I mean, it's very rare that DAX and Power BI can't solve something, but every now and then you do meet your match. Um, there was this triple exponential smoothing, uh, like forecasting model that, that ultimately ended up, uh, I ended up going sideways one time. Um, there's a, these are like just such rare outliers. Um, we, we have done a few things where people come to us and say, we need a power BI project. And it turns out what they really needed was a power app project. Yeah. Thanks. That was what I had in mind because, yeah, and Power apps is one thing. I, I remember a case where a customer, when, when potential customers already know which technology to use, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm already scared. So, yeah. and, and I learned to ask why they uh, want to have it. And yep. I remember a case where a customer wanted to have a Power BI training and then Power BI development. And in the end, I noticed the only thing they needed were a couple of PDFs in a OneDrive because when their salesperson or salespeople uh, were going to their clients, they wanted to show the products as PDF. And they wanted to do that in, in uh, Power BI. And I said, I won't do that. And they were, why not? I said, it's not, the product's not made for that. I don't do that. And half a year later, they hired me for a real Power BI project. But uh, that, that was fun. Yeah. So there are definitely some redirects, um, you know, where... They come in thinking they, you know, they've already sort of identified that they need a hammer and you go, eh, maybe a wrench, um, you know, and those situations don't usually end up being, you know, difficult or combative or anything. It just, you know, they go, oh, oh, cool, you know, and so off we go. Um, and, uh, and that's another huge advantage of diversifying and, and scaling is I never would have developed all of these other skills. We, we, choked, we joked about, but it's the truth, you know, when you were on our show, that, like, I'm just not a very good learner. Like, I've been around technology my whole life, but, like, I'm not, I'm just not drawn to it, uh, and I don't, I don't take to it easily. So the, the, the handful of things that I've learned in my life, like these technical skills that I've learned, you can go and look at those, those particular technologies and go, okay, well, these are special. These are special technologies that that someone like Rob was willing to engage, willing and able to engage with them, you know? So like Excel formulas, VBA, uh, DAX, a little bit of them. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, imagine, you know, being a, an individual like me, I mean, you probably, I think you've, you're probably a little bit more willing to take on, you know, and learn new things than, than I've ever been. So, that's another thing that was sort of in the back of my mind is that like 
there's other technologies and I don't know them. I'm a, I, I'm, I am the hammer running around looking for the nail. Like if, if your problem can be solved with DAX and data modeling, I was good for you. Hmm. But anything else, you know, I, I wasn't. Well, now when someone comes to us and says they need Power BI, but we figure out that they don't need Power BI, we don't, it's not a binary decision of take it or don't take it. Like we have the capabilities. We have people on staff who can do all the things. And so we're able to offer them, you know, a better solution for them. And, you know, most of the time they're interested in that. So are you still working on Power BI solutions or how does a normal day for you look like? Um, well, let's see here. Uh, I'm still to this day, I'm trying to, uh, to hand this off, but at the moment I'm still the owner of our advertising, our, our advertising model that, that measures our advertising effectiveness, uh, like on, on Google. Um, and, um, you know, I keep sort of saying someone needs to take this from me. Someone needs to take this over because it's not evolving the way it should be. Uh, I think I'm going to get my wish and finally get give that up in the next you know couple of weeks. Um, and it, you know it's funny like I enjoy that work, but you know it's reached the point where like again it's an operational thing and like I can't keep up with everything. So um, like some things have to be delegated. Um. And like that one, it's just, it just, Kellen has been really good about this. Like Kellen over and over again will say, look, any, anything, you know, that, that bottlenecks on you is a potential weakness for us. And not meaning like, not even in the case that something happened to me, like, it's not like what happens if you get hit by a truck. Yeah. Like it's, it's, um, it's just a place that we get slowed down. And so like, um, you know, Kellen's really good about identifying these sorts of bottlenecks and saying, look, these are actually things that limit the speed and the growth of the business. So we need to put a lot of effort into de-bottlenecking, which again is hard to do because you feel like you're just, you're just constantly like not doing the things. You're constantly <laughs> getting someone else to do the things that you could be doing. And it's, it's so you, you feel it's, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing to struggle with. Um, But then I get things like the Wordagami project, you know, like analyzing. Have we talked about Wordagami? Yeah, I've seen it on Twitter. Okay, yeah. Uh, and like, oh my God, the Wordagami project, that's fun. <laughs> uh, no one's taken Wordagami from me. <laughs> But even there, analyzing that, oh my God, I needed help. Uh, I couldn't do the Power Query to chew that thing up, all those transcripts. You know, so uh, Ed Hansberry built the majority of the initial power query for me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I have the, I have this amazingly capable set of colleagues that I can go to. Um, and it's not just me, like they, they go to each other, which is really more important. You know, it's not like Wordagami, it's not like the fate of the world hangs in the balance whether the Wordagami model gets built or not. But um, so um, I don't get to do as much. Uh, a few years back, I was doing the um, sort of going back to my roots and doing the, the a Power BI model over NFL football data. Um, and we did the, the no checkdowns site, nocheckdowns.com uh, with that. And then that turned into Coverhawk for the uh, 
for the high school coaches in Texas. Uh, we've had Coach Chase Hargis on our show talking about that. Um, and so those are places where I've kind of, you know, every now and then there's a there's a project like that. I'll also tell you that um, there's a member of my family who is um, struggling with some some very complicated health problems uh, with lots of variables, lots of lots of different you know diet makes a difference, medication makes a difference, all kinds of things make a difference, mm-hmm. and there's and there's all kinds of symptoms too, and so you know like the other day I found myself um, like we're we're using all the all the things like we've got Excel online. <laughs> and it's 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 on their phone and they're using it to log symptoms every hour uh card view for lists for table uh in excel online because it needs to be on their phone right can't be on a computer it's got to be on their phone got to be within their reach at all times and guess what i'm loading all these different files these excel files into a Power BI model so that we can see the chart overlaid of the symptoms and the medications and everything and start looking for patterns. Like, so, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I find, I find ways to, um, to use the tech. Um, <clears throat> right now while we're recording, <clears throat> we're recording uh, right before the first weekend of the uh, National Football League American Football Playoffs, the tournament, mm-hmm. the, you know, the championship tournament that ends the year. And so we're running a, a fantasy game, fantasy football game, uh, just just for fun within the team. We've got 24 people playing. Uh, and um, I looked at all the different software websites that would run this for us. And they all had problems. They all had things like, a lot, a lot of people who are playing this game have never done anything like this before. It's their first time doing it, and so these interfaces—I knew they were—they were going to be way too complicated and, and, and overkill. So I've got four different Excel online spreadsheets uh, that are tracking people's selections. We're just—we're using these Excel online spreadsheets to to run the whole system. And then I'm going to use Excel online to calculate the results and everything. And Power BI, I don't think is going to get involved unless we start exporting, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, the same tools, they come up over and over again, you know, um, there's sometimes it's, it's just the most beautiful feeling in the world when you're like, Oh, that problem I can solve. Have you, have you seen our, um, uh, uh, we call it the wheel of inquisition. Have you seen that? No, to be honest, not. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> so um, I gave it to Bill Jelen, and he did a, a YouTube video on it because I, I knew that I wouldn't have the time to do the YouTube video. But you know, when we during COVID, when we were having all these meetings online, and uh, and the team was growing really rapidly, like we people weren't willing to ask questions, or they were hesitant to ask questions. And so we have like a, a big all hands meeting and like me or Kellen would just talk at them for an hour and a half and no one would ever ask any questions. And it's, you know, that's not how you want it to be. Nope. So I built this thing in, in VBA that's this giant like wheel of fortune, like this big spinner mm-hmm. where the arrow goes around and it'll, and then it slowly starts to tick, tick, <laughs> tick, tick, get slower and slower and slower. And then it'll stop on someone's name and and that person then has to ask me a question or I will ask them one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and we rolled that out for a few weeks and we don't need it anymore. 
<laughs> but like, you know, Bill and I worked on this, like, you know, it was like, you know, like we both had different approaches to it, but like, I, I wanted it to have realistic physics, you know, it needed to slow down in a believable way. Yeah. But also in a way that you couldn't predict exactly when it was going to stop. Um, it took some fine tuning, but, um, be, because you're, you're, uh, talking about Bill and because of your background in the Excel team, um, I want to address one question to you that occurs all the time, uh, at least in my timeline when I go on social media. And um, I have my, my own opinion, but um, I would be interested to, to know yours. There's so many people complaining about this tool from hell called Excel. There's so many people who finally want to eliminate it from everybody's, uh, everybody's PC and laptop. Um, I know what I'm thinking about it, but what do you think about those guys? Well, uh, let's go back in history a little bit. There was a point in time <clears throat> where IT recognized, uh, kind of woke up to the reality <clears throat> that there was this thing called shadow IT. All these... Uh, all these people out in the business units that were not IT people who were operating technology that, you know, business mission critical technology that really seemed like it was IT. You know, if you think about it, go back to the original, the first time you've heard, you heard the phrase information technology. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't as boring sounding back then when we first heard it. <laughs> you know, it sounded exciting. You know, for five minutes, <laughs> then the then the sludgy bureaucratic reality came to pass, and it was not well, so much fun anymore. So, but like, Excel is information technology. If you if you hear the words for the first time again, without all of the, you know, the the, the connotations and the the meanings that it's developed over over the years, what could be more information technology than Excel? Okay, so the IT organizations saw things like Excel and Access out there in, in, the, in the shadows. And, and at times they were getting blamed for the failures. The IT organization was getting blamed for the Excel and Access failures. When something would blow up, even though IT didn't even know about it, IT would, would oftentimes get blamed. Yeah. Well, that's, not, that's not fair. I mean, it really yeah, isn't. Yeah. That's, that's a really terrible reality. That's... That's one of the places where the businesses sort of earned the difficulty that they have with the IT org, mm -hmm. is that that was allowed to happen. The blame could be transferred. Okay, so so IT set out in the like the late '90s, I think, to wage war against Access and Excel, and they were incredibly successful at wiping out Access. Access is basically gone hmm. I, I remember not, being part not well, in my experience okay all right well <laughs> hey you know how we talked about like you know the the moves that happen in the u.s sometimes take a little translation time to get to germany maybe yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe 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 the <laughs> maybe the end of access is still coming for you um but within anyway within like large enterprise accounts which is the thing that where microsoft pays the absolute most attention Uh, that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand is that um, 
Microsoft sells software to the whole world, but they only pay attention to selling to the organizations that have like, I forget, but it's like, if, if you don't have like some number of thousands of, of seats at your company that they can sell to, Microsoft won't even assign a sales rep to you. Mm -hmm. Now keep in mind that when they do assign a sales rep to you, sometimes that sales rep is responsible for a hundred other accounts at the same time. Right? So, but for, for like the overwhelming majority, the, the vast number of companies in the world, most of the companies in the world are smaller than that. And Microsoft doesn't assign any, any sales effort to them. You know, it, it's like marketing and then there's resellers and that's it. So, um, in my world in office, it used to be that there was office pro and office standard, two different SKUs, two different versions of the product. And really the only difference between pro and standard was that pro contained access and standard did not. Mm -hmm. And the dirty secret was that standard was created not to offer another product, but, but, to, but to allow the pro product to be sold for more. It was never intended that anyone would ever buy standard. But they did. Right. <laughs> so for, for a while that worked. It worked. People bought Pro. These large organizations bought Pro. Um, but they didn't, buy, they didn't buy standard. But then over time, like as the war on access, like started to gain some traction, you know, and it was basically IT is the one making the business that the purchasing decision, right? One of the number one ways they can get rid of access is just to buy standard, not to buy pro. <laughs> you know, they can just take it away. Okay. But there, what, no one, I guess what, this is a long-winded way of saying, a tremendous amount of energy and intensity was, was turned on both of these products, access and Excel, with the intent to exterminate them. They largely exterminated access from these large organizations. I'm sure access still exists very, very, very well and comfortably at, you know, mid-sized and small businesses, but the enterprise got rid of, the enterprise overwhelmingly got rid of access. Uh, and I got dragged into all kinds of uncomfortable conversations about how we could, how we could, believe it or not, take things out of the standard skew and only include them in pro to help prop up the pro skew now that access wasn't doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. So like the XML feature that I worked on in 2003 Excel was, was not put in to standard. Like it was taken out of standard and only put in pro is to help, you know, support the pro. And it, this was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it was a terrible idea, but I mean, they didn't have any choice. They needed something. Right. So anyway, um, they should have they ended up taking conditional format formatting out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So good luck. Um, yeah, we, we're, we're going to take the color blue away. I mean, it just, it, all, of, it, all of it just sounds like, yeah, you can, it, yeah, you want blue, you need to buy pro. It just, it always felt so icky. Um, but you know, whatever. So anyway, um, all that energy access was successfully exterminated in the enterprise. Excel only got stronger. Like it's just, Excel is going nowhere. Uh, and um, so many times the problems that people blame Excel for <clears throat> are, I mean, well, first of all, they're real, they're legitimate. 
you know, um, spreadsheet errors do cost a lot of money. And there's some really, really, really like tragic instances of a formula error or I forgot to fill down or, you know, I mean, we had Chris Ray on our podcast a, a while back and he talked about one where, you know, he, his spreadsheet led to a, you know, six or seven figure loss for his, um, for his bank. Um, but he had put a disclaimer at the top of his spreadsheet that says, don't use it for this purpose. And someone used it for that purpose. <laughs> anyway, so Chris was, Chris was safe and the other person got fired. <laughs> so, but I mean, like, um, there's problems like that. There's also problems where the other problem is, of course, the big one that I'm, I'm aware of all the time is that, um, you know, the Excel is still used overwhelmingly as the number one BI tool in the world. And it yeah. really wasn't, well, it wasn't designed for that. And so the VLOOKUP and Pivot crowd is, has always been and remains the sort of like this last line of defense against, you know, traditional BI just completely failing to address the needs of the business. Um, and Excel is, you know, the tool of last resort in those cases and it wasn't designed for it. And so um, it's slow, you know, it, it, it takes a long time um, to splice together, you know, six different data sources in Excel. And, and then when you do successfully splice those together and you build a report and someone asks you a follow-up question, well, your report doesn't answer that follow-up question. And the way that Excel is designed requires you to basically rebuild the entire thing hmm. to answer that completely natural and valuable next level of question. You know, but, and that's what Power BI is for, is for that scenario. So, um, you know, Excel hell, well, it's real. Uh, now, it's... It's preferable to the alternative, which is we, we're just completely blind. <laughs> like, I mean, it it if um if the traditional BI world had been more effective in the first place, we wouldn't have needed as much Excel to compensate for that failure. But I mean, tr the traditional BI model was always a failure. And you've probably heard me say this multiple times. I have yet to find the place where traditional BI actually worked. <laughs> Once. Yeah, I heard you say that uh, just, in one of your it's episodes. Just a, it's a failure everywhere. Yeah. It, what, and, it, and there's still a lot of, a lot of traditional BI out there. Um, and by the way, you can still use Power BI in a traditional way. <laughs> and so yeah, you can square peg, round hole, and get right back to that same inefficiency. If you, if you really crave that crawling in efficiency of the traditional BI world, you can still get there with Power BI if you want. You know, yeah. you just, just, just treat it like the new reporting services. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, um, it's it, the, the problems with Excel, uh, at least in the, in, the, in the BI role, are that you really should be using Power BI instead. And... You know, you've, you've seen it. Like every, every product in the world now uh, competes against Excel. Like uh, the, there was a very famous <clears throat> uh, or infamous article that landed in like Harvard Business Review. One of the big, 
you know, relatively highly regarded business magazines, online magazines here in the U.S., the title of the article was highly inflammatory. Finance departments begin abandoning Excel or something like that. It was that dramatic. Do you remember this? Did, did, did this I, make it to you? Yeah. Um, one or two years ago. No, yeah. it was yeah. no, it was before the pandemic, I think. But I, yeah, I, I, I guess it's what you know. Probably three or four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I can almost tell you exactly when it happened. It was um, early 2018. Um, and, um, well, it turned out, as I got into that, I was learning about the, 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 the PR, the public relations industry at the time, because we, we had actually hired a PR firm for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not using one right now, but um, <clears throat> what, if you look at that article again, what you will find is that that article was, um, was really just a, an advertising piece for Anaplan. Mm-hmm. So this is how the PR industry works, is that the, the media, you know, like Harvard Business Review, they're sitting around going, what are we going to write about today? We need something that draws eyeballs because we sell ads, right? We don't have any content. We don't have enough content. So the PR industry <clears throat> works with companies like Anaplan, and basically, Anaplan wrote that article. Not kidding? Yeah, not kidding. Uh, now, in fact, our, our PR firm, there were some cases where we would literally write the article and give it to the, to the publication and they would run it. Other times, the publication would interview us and then write an article. Mm-hmm. Right? And you know, none of this really made a difference. It was kind of a, it was a good thing to have learned, but it didn't really make a much, much difference in our business. Um, <clears throat> so we don't do it anymore. And, but, but it allowed me to see sort of like how the sausage is made in some ways. And I was learning about this all at the same time that this Anaplan article came out. And so learning all that, I went and read the article and I saw that Anaplan made it into like the fourth paragraph. And I'm like, oh, you dirty, <laughs> dirty dogs. <laughs> it, <clears throat> it wasn't, there wasn't some new amazing trend of finance departments moving away from Excel. You know, Anaplan wanted to write an article about a PR piece about, you know, the handful of companies that they'd gotten to switch. Yeah. And by the way, they didn't actually switch. They just adopted it. And then I'm still sure that they're exporting to Excel. Everybody, right? everybody does. Yeah. Like, it's the only way that Anaplan or, or any software can keep up, you know, like no centralized software is going to keep up with the needs of something so complicated, right? So, um. And when the when Harvard Business Review gets a hold of the article, they put the most they put the type of headline on it that will draw the most clicks. Yeah, clickbait. Yep. It's and game set and match right now. The whole world's talking about <clears throat> how Excel is is being shoved aside, which it wasn't. Uh, and this was the most effective. The amount of money that it took Anaplan to get that article placed. You would not believe how inexpensive it was. How it's just inexpensive. Inexpensive. Okay. This is the most effective thing that they did with any dollars that they had that year. <laughs> <laughs> There's no greater ROI. So very oftentimes, these articles and these you know these sorts of things. There's a <clears throat> there's a hidden ulterior motive in them, and if you know if once you know to look for it, you'll find that about nine out of ten of these you can start to spot 
who the, you know, sort of who the hidden, you know, beneficiary is. It's always an agenda. The only reason to attack Excel, uh, you know, publicly like that is because you think you, you're trying to sell something else. It's, it's good to be, you know, the, the, you know, what is like the heavy, heavy lies of the crown. Like when, when everybody uses the same tool, that's the tool that's going to, you know, everyone's going to be throwing darts at it. Everyone's going to be attacking it. Um, and, uh, and what I always think now, I need a glass of water. Yeah, me. Here we go. Here we go. Everybody's talking about um, bad experience with Excel files, bad, um, yeah, showing the wrong figures. Nobody's talking about bad behavior in regards of training the people. I have never experienced that someone um, blames a tool for the outcome. Usually it's the one who uses the tool who produces uh, the bad outcome. So why not talking about how to train the people properly to create the right outcome with this tool? Because everybody's blaming Excel for being flexible, but the great benefit of it is being flexible. So this is why everybody uses it. Yeah. Well, again, back when I was on Excel, there was this conference that started in Europe. As far as I know, it's still around today. Maybe it isn't. I mean, it was, it was controversial at the time. I bet it's kind of lost some of its edginess. But it was called, I don't know how they, they pronounced the acronym, but it was EU SPRIG, letter E-U-S-P-R-I-G. And it was an entire annual conference devoted to the tragedy of spreadsheet errors and what, <laughs> what a yeah and what a you know what a pestilence on the world this is right so this is a very very in a way a very anti-spreadsheet uh like kind of like academic think tank in a way it's a very strange thing right hmm. um and But you know, you look at their you look at their research, and you go, "Oh yeah, this is this is just entirely believable." Basically, what they what they found was that human beings, when operating anything, technology, whatever, basically have about a one percent error rate. So every hundred things you do, you're going to screw up one of them. So when a spreadsheet has, you know thousands of moving parts or several hundred moving parts, chances are very good that it has multiple errors in it. Yeah. It's kind of inevitable. And so I believe them that there are spreadsheets right now everywhere running businesses with, with really ghastly errors in them that are undetected and that are causing all kinds of problems that are, that are also then never detected. <laughs> um, and every now and then, You know, they blow up spectacularly and they get noticed. Like, really, really funny was was um, uh, Tibco Spotfire, uh, one of the like, kind of one of the Tableau clones yeah. um, and a, a Power BI competitor. Well, they they you know advertised very aggressively, just like Tableau, uh, against Excel. You know, like time to stop using you know your your father's. You know, your, your grandparents' <laughs> tools, you know, step up something modern. You know, you've seen these sorts of ads all over the place, right? And then, but then when they sold themselves, not in an initial, not in an IPO, when they sold themselves to a private equity firm, 
they sold themselves to the private equity firm for something r- ridiculously like they they like sold themselves for like a hundred million dollars less than they could have because their own finance department had made an Excel error. <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> like poetic justice department. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> so, so I believe that right that, and so when I. When I used to teach classes, one of the things I would tell people is that <clears throat> the, the the one of the fundamental problems with Excel is that it it doesn't it doesn't iterate <laughs> at all. Like the the way to the way to reuse a formula is to copy paste it. And by the way, when you copy paste it, when you when you need to use it in a different context, you can't even copy paste it because you need to change the references. Their geog- those geographic references need to point in different directions and at different offsets if you're dealing with a more detailed data set. Mm-hmm. You know? Whereas DAX isn't like that. DAX is very, very, very portable. You write the measure once. So it took me a long time to figure out in the early days how to even talk about this, but like the idea that DAX formulas are portable, they are reusable. You write them once, use them everywhere. So that... If you have an analytical spreadsheet and then a Power BI model that achieves the same goal, um, the Power BI model is going to have far fewer moving parts, uh, far fewer pieces of machinery, right? And, and furthermore, the Power BI model, because it uses the same machinery over and over again, that formula gets reused over and over again, every one of your reports, every, t- every time you're doing something different with it, you're inherently testing uh, your machinery. And if there's an error in your machinery, it's harder for it to go unnoticed, not impossible, but it's harder for it to go unnoticed when every report is testing the same thing. Hmm. Whereas in Excel, every formula you write is sort of like supporting one piece of one report. And so, you know, an error that you make is much more like, so first of all, you're more likely to make errors because the 1% thing, right? Yeah. You have more iterate, you know, more at bats, more trials. And secondly, because it's all used in a one-to-one way, you're never gonna. You're much, much, much less likely to notice the error. So, you know, I think Power BI, at least again for analytical reporting BI type purposes, um, Power BI is much more resilient against error. There's, there, there, again, there's no, there's no sure thing, you know, but it's much more resilient against error. And if we're honest with ourselves, you know, Lars, you and I, if we were building really complicated spreadsheets these days, we're just as, you know, like, let's say we're really good. Maybe you and I only have a one in 200 error rate. I mean, that would be enormously better than the average, you know, Excel pro, right? The we're, thing, still mess, we're still messing up. The, the thing about the errors is... Um, of course, there's sitting people in front of it and people making errors with every tool on this planet. But what's the alternative? What's right. what's the alternative to having Excel on the PCs? Just shutting it down doesn't solve a problem. <laughs> Suddenly, people can't work anymore. And if you yeah. shut down Excel tomorrow, if Microsoft yeah. decides we shut down all <clears throat> yeah. Excel installations fr- from tomorrow on, this world is fucked. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's but, okay. Yeah. That's you know, it's your, it's your show, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, at Microsoft, I learned to use profanity like punctuation. 
um, you know, I, I got a real potty mouth working at Microsoft, <laughs> but I, I ran that in mostly, uh, uh, for my show, you know, just, you know, but, uh, boy, my, my normal life, <laughs> I, uh, I swear like a sailor. Um, yeah, I mean, it, that's another example of like out of the frying pan into the fire, right? Yeah. Oh, you, you think the frying pan of Excel is bad. <laughs> Wait till you see what's outside. Um, yeah, I mean, the guaranteed failure of not having any, you know, data-driven approach is, you know, far more damaging than, I mean, even traditional BI, as much as I made fun of it, you know, I would often say that the only thing worse than traditional BI is no BI. Yeah. You know, like I've spent the last decade and a half of my life maybe not that long, but yeah, almost a decade and a half, like with traditional BI as like my villain, you know, the one that I'm, that's, that's, that's the thing I've been demonizing in a way for, for a huge chunk of my career. And even then I'm like, well, no, like, I mean, like you'd have been much worse off if you didn't have it. Yeah. <laughs> so same thing with Excel, of course. Yeah. That resonates with my experience and my ideas about it. Yeah. Wow, this this podcast went completely different to what I thought it would be. <laughs> well, that's that's the problem with with me is uh, like like ooh shiny, look at that. Let's go talk about that. Yeah, no, <laughs> Rob was a blast. Thanks for taking the time, and uh, bye everybody. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. Bye, yeah, bye bye. <laughs>